0: Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19
1: for more up-to-the-minute insights.
2: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
0: Good morning, and welcome to BMO Capital Markets LinkedIn Live. Uh, Thank you for joining us today uh, to have a conversation uh, about where we are in the pandemic and uh, where we're headed to. I've been joined today by two guests, Brian Belsky, Vimo Capital Markets Chief Investment Strategist, and Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer for WebMD, a frontline hero, uh, and uh, a a regular contributor uh, to the client content that we're trying to put forward. Over the last few weeks, uh, we've developed uh, a new conversation around the pandemic. Uh, We've come through uh, the last three months, and now we're starting to think about where to from here. Uh, the two collection of experts we have today is to talk to us a little bit about the markets, a little bit about the health, uh, and have a conversation around that. Uh, this is a LinkedIn Live event. You can post questions uh, to us on there. Uh, we're going to open up with some opening comments from both, uh, and then we'll uh, we'll turn to your questions as we go through. So, Brian, why don't you take us from where we've been, uh, your perspectives on it, and, uh, and importantly, as we start to think about opening up the economy, where are we going to go?
1: Well, thanks, Dan. And on behalf of Global Markets, I'd like to thank you for having us today. We have great partners in fixed income and equity. So that really helped us uh, put our decisions and our analysis together with respect to what we're thinking uh, about the market. And, and quite frankly, uh, you know, we've, we in the investment world have thrown around this world unprecedented. And I think the reason why we've done that is that so much of our work historically as an investor, an analyst, a strategist, an economist, is to go back in the past and try to see what has occurred in the past to model it for the future. Unfortunately, we've never seen this before. And I think it's kind of what we've seen so far is a three-phase uh, uh, attempt on, on try to, to gather as much information and move forward from this. So what was phase one? Phase one was pure, unadulterated fear, Dan, because we were dealing with this human element of the virus and we didn't know what it was gonna do to our own lives, let alone to the markets or the economy. And I think, you know, based on what we saw in the markets, we clearly, from our from our lens, overshot to the downside. And then it was kind of phase two as we kind of got back into our own sandboxes in the investment world. What are our own sandboxes? Uh, looking at things like earnings and valuation and stocks and industries and sectors in the market overall and how that fits into the economy after the big pullback. So we kind of started big picture and then we went down into the into the trenches. Now, kind of phase three is, as we begin to open up our lives again in the economy, what does that mean with respect to fundamentals on a bottoms up basis? So I think from our lens that the market did actually bottom on march twenty third, and we've been saying that markets were going to rally forty to fifty percent from the lows. We've had a great rally to date now, incidentally, because this culture, Dan has been so based on fear and rhetoric, now we're questioning the rally and nobody 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 believes it and all that kind of thing. So that's why you have to default to fundamentals. And what we continue to tell our clients around the world is that Canada and the United States has the best have the best companies in the world, period. So now what we're advocating is from a bottoms-up level, more fundamental investing, worry less about the macro, and quite frankly, some of these bombastic type of analysis and forecast for a Great Depression type era. We do not believe that is the case, nor nor do our economists. And so we do believe a rapid recovery, worry less about the big picture and more about bottoms up and focus on those companies and industries and economic sectors that actually will do very well coming out of this and really lead the recovery into the second half and clearly into 2021.
0: And Brian, what uh, what are some of those industries you're focused on on leading the recovery or conversely, some that you think will lag?
1: It's a great question. I think there's so many themes that you can talk about. And I think the best way to think about this, Dan, is to think about a theme that was in place prior to COVID that potentially uh, reinforced itself during COVID and then will continue to grow. One of those is this whole notion of a mobile society and the mobile worker. Clearly, over the last two or three weeks, we've been working from home and we've been talking about Um, uh, streaming and broadband. Well, these are trends and companies that were in place prior to uh, COVID, were reinforced during COVID, and we think we'll have longer term run life through that. So whether or not that's a Netflix or a Google or an Apple or an Amazon or a Costco or a Walmart, we're buying things differently. And we believe that trend is going to continue going forward. There's something very, very interesting I think investors need to understand post the tech crisis right we had we 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 in the investor world said we'd never buy another tech stock again but coming out of that in the 2000s we had brand new leadership of stocks that were not not even around amazon became a public company in 1997 not many people knew about it Apple completely retransformed itself in the early 2000s. Google is a brand new company. Netflix is a brand new company. Facebook was a brand new company. So I think you, you want to focus on areas that we see as emerging growth. And we do see that in the communication spot, the technology spot. And I do ultimately, once the global economy begins to reconnect, we are going to have the resource sectors, including energy and materials, play along. But that's a longer term theme, Dan, more like 2021, 2022.
0: Okay, that's great. And I think those uh, that concentration of themes, uh, I would agree with you, through COVID-19, it feels like we've accelerated those themes uh, and broadened them in terms of definition, a lot of which we're already on the same path. Why don't we transition uh, the discussion to Dr. White? Uh, I think we've been through quite a path uh, over the last three months, uh, from the emergence in China to Europe to North America. Uh, and now we're starting to have this conversation about moving uh, back to work or back to the office, as we call it at BMO. Uh, Why don't you share with us uh, your current perspectives on that, how we are, how we're functioning, and then as you start to think about how we can open up our economies, the issues to watch
3: for. Sure, and I'm delighted to join you. And I thought I'd start with a a little bit of perspective, and I I wrote down some numbers. If you think of where we've been over the past nine weeks, you know, in in terms of where we are uh, today versus where we were on March 9th, in March 9th, there were 114,000 cases of coronavirus around the world with only 4000 deaths fast forward that to may 5th and we had 3.6 million cases around the world with 256,000 deaths in the united states it went from 704 cases to over a million 26 deaths when i first talked to folks on march 9th to 72,000 deaths as of yesterday and in canada uh, only 77 cases in, in March 9th versus 62,000 today, and 4,000 deaths today versus only one nine weeks ago. And and my point about this is, we definitely have had um, a, a very serious lethal condition, especially for the elderly and those with underlying conditions. But in many ways, we've had success because we're not at the projections that originally existed of a million, two million plus people. So there is progress in in, in that respect. There are sobering numbers, but nonetheless, it's not where it might have been. And that's really a success of innovation and and some of the success of of public health. uh, As some folks know, I worked at the Food and Drug Administration up until recently. And if you think about in January, there were no drugs in development for something like coronavirus. There are drugs approved for other indications, but not for coronavirus. And we now have 250 drugs in development. And it really shows the flexibility of regulatory agencies in the United States and Canada, around the world. And what was important, these were done through emergency use authorization. So it's a lower standard than approval, but we had to get information uh, and drugs out there Um, But in the context of a clinical trial, during a public health emergency, we still need objective data, we still need peer review. In terms of vaccine development, as you all know, there was no talk about vaccine development for coronavirus. There had been in the past for SARS, but that stopped when the virus dissipated. And now we have 70 different uh, agents under development for vaccine, which is really a tremendous pace. I'm not as optimistic, to be honest, that we'll have something in the fall just based on historical standards, but we still have made tremendous progress. Despite all the criticism that there has been at times on testing, look at the progress that we have made. We have over 70 tests out there, and they're going to be iterative. There's going to be challenges, but these were developed in months versus years uh, than before. So we've seen progress on that end as well. So the big challenge that we come up to now and, and, you know, I wanted us to, to think about it is how do we think about the role of tech? Brian had mentioned tech when we really have seen them coming to address the public health crisis in terms of testing. We're talking about this issue of contact tracing. How do we find folks that might have come into contact and perhaps been exposed to those that have the virus? And traditionally, in public health, we hire people and they go out and they try to get all this information. But what's the role of tech? We saw in China and Singapore, where really we were able to use technologies, whether it's location trackers or Bluetooth, to identify those folks. And the reason why this is so important, Dan, is when we think about how do we return to work? How do we reopen the economy? What's the new normal? We need to have a strategy in place. And it's part policy it's part science, and how do we make them come together and recognize that there are also the social determinants of health. There are other reasons why people have issues with their health, and we're all concerned about folks with heart attacks aren't going to the emergency room. Folks with diabetes aren't refilling their medicines. So how do we manage it? And what we've seen around the world, in Canada, in the United States, and elsewhere, we wanna see that decrease in cases. And almost everyone will agree that we've reached the plateau in our respective countries. And we're on that downward slope. That doesn't mean that there's no cases, but there's a decrease in the number of new cases and deaths every day. We certainly have addressed some of the issues in terms of equipment and availability of ventilators that we need for the most seriously ill. So we've made progress on that end. So when we say is a time to, to reopen, recognizing the new normal. I think in many ways, we're looking to see what are conditions in the local community. Do we have a decrease in cases? Uh, do we have you know, hospital capacity? And then it goes back to testing and tracing. And Canada actually has done very well in terms of identifying folks. Uh, and then what we call is put them in a box, a virtual box, so to speak. So we identify folks and then look around to see who they came in contact with. And then isolate those folks instead of isolating the entire community. So I think that's what we're going to see as is, is we start to open up the importance of contact tracing. It doesn't mean that physical distancing is going to go away. It doesn't mean that we don't have to have hand washing uh, and disinfecting surfaces. We should all still be wearing uh, facial coverings for the next few weeks, but we really are seeing that light at the end of the tunnel. And, and there's lots of things To appreciate in terms of what we've been able to do to combat the pandemic, so I I think we've made progress, and I'm I'm going to be looking forward to the discussion.
0: Well, and I think that uh, that progress is something that we monitor. We've got fairly substantial operation in Asia, in China in particular, and they've been through the cycles that we're now talking about about how to reopen, uh, and all the wise words that you just used around uh, personal safety, uh, physical distancing. Uh, I'm aware of the contact apps that they've built. Uh, you know, that all operate through the phones uh, to make sure that everybody is in, you know, has the ability to follow uh, who's been contacted. Uh, it also gives an assessment of where you are in the risk spectrum, uh, depending Absolutely. on, you know, the level of contact you've been, which uh, I haven't seen to date. I thought we might plumb a little bit on uh, your vaccine conversation. Uh, mm-hmm. There was some very optimistic news this week uh, mm-hmm. or very optimistic prognostations by some of the larger drug companies uh, mm-hmm. saying that they think they can accelerate down even into the fall. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I've heard ranges from the fall till 18 months out, 24 months out. Sure. Now, how do you feel about these days? And I think the, you know, the dynamic that we're wrestling, which is, you know, working mm-hmm. on drugs and treatments that will make the effect lower is great.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and then obviously a vaccine as we think about protecting more and, and a broader right. swath of, uh, of the economy yeah. and of
3: people. So let's also remember that 80 to 90 percent of folks that contract coronavirus actually resolve with no need for hospitalization. Sometimes when we watch the news, it seems that everyone that has coronavirus is being hospitalized. 80 to 90% of people cleared at home. But we're still trying to figure out what are those effective treatments. So that's why a vaccine is important. But for me, it's what's the historical evidence? The historical evidence is it often takes a decade, usually even longer. We are further along than we are in other viruses, partly because there was development in SARS and there are some similarities. But the challenges are going to be if the virus mutates, then that makes a vaccine less effective. We see that with influenza every year. And when you really look at some of those studies, what they're talking about is they have to make a determination now uh, or within a few weeks based on efficacy because they have to put it in production. We need millions of vials So they're taking a chance to have something in the fall. Is it possible that, you know, they'll dot all the I's and cross all the T's and the vaccine will be safe and effective? Possibly. But we also have to be realistic. That's why the discussions have also been a vaccine in the fall would be for first responders, the health community, police, and and fire folks. So You know, I'm not as optimistic about something in the fall. I think we have made tremendous progress in terms of the multiple therapies that are under consideration. But history provides a guide in in terms of, for vaccine development, what's helpful. You know, I'm thinking it's going to be a little longer than the fall, to be honest, but that's my personal perspective of having worked at the agency and, and having worked in health services research for quite some time.
0: I think that's quite a bit of good insight when you think about where would it go first, highest need, um, you know, in the first responders and in the health system itself and then general population over time. And I presume harder hit areas first, then less harder hit uh, as you try. And- you know,
3: that that would be in theory. Most folks haven't said the general population yet, because remember, we're making a determination now to produce it. We're still going to have to collect more data. But in theory, you want to, it's risk versus benefit, just as it is in you know other industries. You have to weigh the potential benefit of the vaccine with some potential safety risks, depending upon where we are in development, versus the risk that you're going to contract the virus. And, and that's why we focus on the first responders, because they're, they're the ones that are actually have the greatest exposure. So I, I think we can be optimistic, but we're going to have to carefully look at the data over time and there really is some guesswork which we normally wouldn't do in vaccine development but but this is a pandemic so you know it's a balance
0: that's great we've got some questions coming in on LinkedIn live let me uh let me go to those the first one uh is uh from John uh, the housing market looks frozen which so few uh with so few transactions how do you think about house prices uh, Brian do you want to take that and i think move that into the market implications and probably for real estate
1: Sure. Uh, thanks, John, for asking that question. I, I would say the, uh, real estate's still all about location, location, location. I think uh, what we've seen in Canada is that inventory has been kind of pulled off the market, as we saw even a couple of years ago when we worried more about a quote-unquote housing bubble. A, a lot of Canadians, especially in Ontario, pulled uh, inventory off the market and actually uh, created a scarcity proposal. Uh, and actually, uh, we started to see housing prices go up again. We've seen. Uh, rentals and some of the New York metropolitan area pricing begin to fall off. I saw this back in the first quarter of of 2009. um, I I myself was looking for an apartment in New York City, and it only lasted about six months, and it came back pretty quickly, uh, the second half of 2009. There's been some talk about mortgage rates not resetting correctly. The other thing, too, you have to think about from a common sense perspective is uh, in the United States, there's several areas where you have to go to a closing agent uh, to close your to close your mortgage and you, and what I'm hearing uh, from some bankers is that they can't get a closing appointment because uh, they're actually so busy or the shelter in place order. So you know we think that that um, given the, that the savings rate is clearly ticked up, uh, that people actually have been spending less money and they're preparing for wanting to spend money again after being cooped up, we think housing actually the second half of the year, especially considering uh, these record low mortgage rates, which, If the Fed, according to our economists, aren't going to do anything until uh, the first half of 2022, rates are going to be low for a while. And so as we begin to come back to work and recover from that side, we think the the housing market in both countries actually could be quite strong uh, the second half of the year heading into 2021. So right now it's just a matter of kind of scarcity versus capacity, people taking off inventory and not being able to take advantage of these very, very low rates.
0: Okay. Uh, that's a that's a great perspective, Brian. And uh, uh, in terms of what's coming and how you think through uh, the dynamics of this cycle and and where it may go. Uh, an interesting question from uh, from Grace in New York. Uh, there's been some discussion recently that people are not going to the hospital for other uh, ailments, whether it's uh, the heart, cancer, payments, uh, mm-hmm. others. What what do we need to see uh, for people to have the confidence to go back uh, to those institutions for those issues? And what advice could we give to people about thinking of that in yeah. a more uh, Collective way.
3: That's absolutely right. There was a recent study that appeared this week that showed mammography appointments are 80% down. Colonoscopy appointments are 90% down. We know that the rates of heart attacks presenting to the hospital are down. So where are these people going in stroke? So very concerned about them at home with advanced disease that haven't come in. So I think what we need is we need effective communication. Um, even as the virus dissipates, the fear of the virus isn't going to dissipate. And we have to help patients understand that it's safe to come back to the hospital. It's safe to come back to clinic. And I think hospitals and clinics have to talk about what they're doing to make patients feel safe. They're cleaning and disinfecting uh, strategies. The fact that they're doing some social distancing. So we don't have 30 people in the waiting room for an hour. They were minimizing the contact. It doesn't mean that we can eliminate it, but we can reduce risk. And what I'm trying to help patients understand, because I still see patients, you can't do everything by telehealth. There's definitely been a role for telehealth, and it's been extremely helpful in this setting. But sometimes you need to go in to check that that you know, mole isn't cancerous, You know, to monitor where you are in your heart condition. <clears throat> so we have to make them feel safe, and that's by explaining to them what institutions are doing, and then helping them understand that care delayed at some point really impacts your health. You can wait a month or two, but you can't forget about your appointment this year. So it's really about helping patients understand that. And I think we're going to see that come back because people still need knee replacements. People still need hip replacements. They they need to fill their medicines. So hopefully we're going to get people to understand that they need to come back and engage with health community for non-COVID conditions.
0: Yeah, I was gonna share an anecdote, uh, Dr. White. My, uh, my neighbor is an emergency cardiologist uh, and he's observing the exact same facts that your study found, which is people are not coming in at the early right. signs of, of having a you know, heart disease mm-hmm. and they're waiting until it's too late. And mm-hmm. the fear of going into the emergency room is stopping them from getting the care they need. Mm-hmm. And so then when it becomes desperate, Uh, the number of options they have and the ability and the skills they have to be helped is actually, you know, reduced dramatically.
3: Right. Because we Uh, told them don't come. Now we have to tell them to come back.
0: Correct. Especially for emergency procedures or things that are in your deep health. Um, Here's uh, an an interesting one uh, that I thought, uh, Brian, uh, you'd enjoy. What's the biggest positive that people are missing in the U.S. stock and Canadian stock
1: markets? That's a great question. I would say this. I think if you go back and look at closing prices as of yesterday, I think people have missed the fact that in local currencies, Canada's up 32 uh, percent. Uh, in the U.S., in terms of the S&P 500, is up 28 percent. The Nasdaq's up 28 percent. If a Canadian bought that index in U.S. dollars, it'd be up 36 percent. I think people are missing this, and I think it's just this built-in negativity of the markets. And I think the biggest positive is again. Um, we believe, to, to go back to what uh, kind of a theme that we said post-financial crisis, is that Canada and the United States are the best house in a bad neighborhood. What's the neighborhood? Well, emerging markets, uh, biggest players, clearly China. We think they've had fundamental issues heading into COVID, especially com- uh, considering supply chain uh, changes. And we think a major theme coming out of this could be onshore and repatriation, uh, both in Canada and the United mm-hmm. States, as we see industries come back. Uh, so that could be a very, very strong positive that most people are missing. We talked about technology earlier, Dan, and I think technology has a three-headed monster. It's part industrial, uh, part, uh, part um, healthcare, what Dr. Doctor White talked about, but also part consumer. You know, we're spending our money on technology. And technology, there's parts of technology, Dan, of the new consumer staples. And we think that is a really key thing that most people are missing. The other thing, too, is just kind of going back into the whole notion of being too macro-oriented, and I think it really caused most most of the fears. When we made macro decisions without looking at bottoms-up fundamentals. And so, what we've been trying to tell people to to help them focus on the positive and not so much the negative is this whole notion of control what you can control. Stop trying to be a closet doctor and say words like hydroxychloroquine, which I just butchered, uh, or remdesivir or epidemiologists. In, in this business, Dan, we tend to. Want to learn as much as we can with respect to the subject matter that is happening right at hand because we're analysts and that we didn't have any any we shouldn't be doing that what we should be doing is looking at earnings and valuation in that and I think that what we're missing is that again, uh, financials are in a much better condition than they are now versus the great financial crisis so that's an opportunity that we think actually people are being too negative on technology is is this three headed monster communication services. Focuses on the mobility of not only society, but the worker as well. And then there's going to be fringe cyclical areas and never, ever forget that the United States and Canada, again, have the best companies in the world. But there will be a burgeoning new leadership that emerges from this. And so that's what investors should be looking forward to. That's great. Um... Here's one, uh, Doctor White. I'm not
0: sure if this is uh, right up your alley, but how's the pandemic changed the relationship between public health and the business community? Um, I think you're in the U.S. different than Canada, but really, I think some insight there.
3: Yeah. Well, there's a couple aspects of that. I think we all have a greater appreciation that there is an association between health and wealth, even in terms of our own uh, medical conditions. Um, But in terms of you know public health and business, you know. Typically, they're seen as very different. They don't overlap at all. And the pandemic has taught us about the inner relationship. So businesses have to rely upon public health experts to help advise them as to when is it safe to return to work? When can folks, you know, relax social distancing? How do we have social distancing in restaurant settings and other areas? You know, is that practical? How do we manage it? And I think both of them can help tremendously in helping consumers understand the concept of risk. What is my individual risk based on some personal attributes? What health conditions I have in terms of whether or not I'm going to be at risk for contracting coronavirus versus also going back to work, earning a living, um, you know, maintaining the other social determinants of health. So I think we're going to come out of this with a much greater appreciation that there is this important relationship between public health and the business community.
0: I think that's great. Um, the next question is there uh, for both of you, I think. Um, what could go wrong with the reopening of the economy and what keeps you up at night?
3: So Dr. White, maybe you first. Sure, you know, I think we have to acknowledge upfront that there are going to be more cases. So as we open up, everyone's not going to practice social distancing. There's going to be some challenges. We can't assume that it's going to be zero. And what I'm concerned is, you know, we have to do this in a measured way. And sometimes the media, I'm going to be honest, is going to, you know, talk about every case that happens, and I don't know if we can have a situation, say, even as we go back to school, that someone might have contracted the virus and then we shut down the entire school system. We have to think about this in a rational way uh, and perhaps say it's more of that you know, containment in a box. So that's what I'm concerned about, that people aren't ready and they don't recognize Mm. it's expected that cases are gonna increase. We're doing more testing, cases are gonna increase. Look more at rates of hospitalization so that's what I'm concerned—that the media may not present information in all the ways that they should, and, and people are going to become misinformed. That's my biggest concern. And then we just see this mental health crisis that's um, being exacerbated by, you know, social isolation. Canada used a better word of, of physical distancing instead instead of social distancing. So that's what I'm concerned about. We need to be ready for the next. Pandemic, which is going to be mental health.
0: Um, Brian, how about yourself?
3: I would
1: echo what Doctor White said. You know, there's certain media outlets, Dan, whose ratings are up three hundred percent on a year-over-year basis because fear sells, and fear's the easier story. Yeah. And ourselves have actually been muted a little bit by the media because we have been so positive. But we just we just live in the truth and live in facts and analysis. I think that the other thing that that could actually really be an issue from a fundamental perspective is companies unwilling to add capacity now are we going to need more airplanes because they're not as many airplanes are going to be flying we're not going to have as many people in 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 the air, mm-hmm. air in the airplane itself because we need to space these people up but the same amount of people are going to want to travel these types of things i think are, are going to be speed bumps that companies are going to have to deal with so that could be another potential issue i sleep like a baby at night by the way because because we uh, we all we do in our portfolios that we that we manage for our BMO clients is buy high quality companies. And so I think we're very well positioned with respect to to um, weathering some of this volatility, which is clearly going to happen. But I think to be a high quality investor during these times has to be one of the main attributes. And when you're building portfolios and strategies.
0: That's great. I think we're going to extend the uh, the LinkedIn live for another 10 minutes. We've got lots and lots of questions coming in. Uh, so let's just keep uh, working through some of those questions that uh, that have jumped up. Uh, another one back for you, Brian. Uh, any positive developments when you think about oil and gas?
1: Yes. Um, what I would say this is that, you know, we had a funky uh, thing go on a couple of weeks ago with respect to this massive contango between future prices and actual prices. and And what we found in our work, especially in Canada, is that when we see these types of huge spikes in contango, in the spread that we actually see triple-digit uh, triple-digit uh, returns and not only WTI, but double-digit returns in, in oil and gas. I think the, the other positive thing, this harkens me back to, this is one of the things we've been doing this for 30 years, the late 90s uh, in the energy sector, especially in the United States. The, this, the S&P 500 uh, energy sector weight got down below 3% for the first time ever. Uh, from a contrarian perspective, that's very positive with respect to all, making a longer-term type of call on the sector. These are just kind of price performance things. From a fundamental perspective, we still think these companies are still dealing with um, dealing with transitioning from demand-led to supply-led type of dynamics. And I think maybe the major positive that actually could happen, Dan, is that like the late 90s, I think we're going to see massive MA, uh, not only in, in Canada, but in the United States with respect to To energy as they get even tighter in terms of scarcity versus capacity and how they're running their businesses. And so I think that could be very, very positive for the energy complex longer term. And then lastly, just respect to the politicking and the saber rattling between the United States and Saudi Arabia and Russia, this actually could reinforce this whole notion of of North America becoming more energy independent, which clearly will benefit Canada and the United States. But again, From our lens, and that's why we're overweight Canadian energy versus the United States energy companies, because we believe Canadian energy uh, management from the CEO and CFO level are much better positioned to manage this lower level of WTI like they were in the 90s relative to their neighbors to the south in the United States who are still a little bit more aggressive relative to Canadian management.
0: That's great. Um, Dr. White, one of the things that Brian said that triggered a a question for you um, one of the responses to reopening is very regional, uh, and as we think about those regional differences, I mean Toronto versus New York versus Montreal versus mm-hmm. Italy—they're all on different paths and different exposure. Uh, with the lockdowns, we've actually curtailed international and intercity travel even mm-hmm. uh, in a dramatic way. How do you see that—the uh, impact of that different regionalization impacting how we think about the crisis and people moving? Uh, you know, especially in our big international cities.
3: Yeah. And, you know, we, we really can't limit interstate travel, certainly here in the United States and, and even, you know, around the borders, they're, they're opening up. And, and we want to see that in terms of continuing to, uh, you know, have commerce that is international in scope. We have a global supply chain and we have to recognize that that when we don't have that, that causes challenges and drug shortages and other areas. But what we've talked about consistently is we have to make decisions based on local conditions and local infection rates. So you're right, New York is is very different than Phoenix uh, or even Los Angeles. Part of that is population density. Part of that is the way folks live in terms of high rises, in terms of mass transit. So we're gonna see different policies, perhaps in local communities, based on that infection rate. That's why testing is so important. That's why getting, you know, good accurate numbers in terms of what's happening in your community is important. It's not going to be a one size fits all as we reopen um, you know, the economy and reopen society. And then it's going to be measuring it over time. So it's not as if we're going to be in pause and then just start play it's going to be a measured stepwise approach. But that's just the reality. It's going to vary based on local areas. We're not going to, you know, put cops on the road and and stop people from going to different areas. And and those are things that we should be doing. There is transmissibility, but if we, you know, practice, you know, common sense approaches as well uh, to physical distancing and, and good hygiene, we're going to continue to see progress.
0: As you think about this opening up, Dr. White, do you think there'll be another lockdown in the fall, right, if a
3: second wave were to occur? Yeah. You know, I've been asked this question quite a bit, and I'm going to give you, you know, really what I think is the measured response. We will be in a much better position if we think there's resurgence in the fall, and that may be the case. Other seasonal viruses do that. But look where we are today uh, versus where we were several months ago and where we'll be in the fall. We're much better on that. You know, personal protective equipment that we need. We're much better in terms of surge capacity. We're much further along in potential treatment options, which we will continue to be in the fall with or without a vaccine. And maybe we will have one. But the other aspect is, um, you know, the prevalence of the disease actually may be higher than even 10% if we look at, you know, some antibody studies that they've been doing. Um, you know, in Sweden, they've been talking about they may have herd immunity, uh, within a couple of months. And that means a certain percentage of the population is protected. So I think we're going to have that as well. Despite debates about antibody testing, there's good data to show that folks probably will have some degree of immunity. So everyone won't be at risk. So we're going to be in a much better position by the fall, to be honest. I'm not as concerned about the potential consequences of a resurgence. I don't think anyone's going to be prepared uh, mentally even for another lockdown. I think what folks will do will take a much more of a surgical approach to address any outbreaks and not this sledgehammer approach where we basically say everyone is, you know, locked home um, because we know there are consequences of that as well. And then we need to weigh that. So I think we're in a much better place for the fall.
0: Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, our, my observation is very similar to yours. Uh, we've been doing lots of work on the back to office, back to home. Uh, and I think as we learn more, uh, we get more optimistic. Uh, I liked your comment about surge capacity. I don't yeah. know if you've got an estimate for that, but the dynamic of the system is much more better prepared and therefore yeah. it can go to it. Uh, I struggled with your terminology about being in the box, uh, but that concept of people that have tested positive or are in close contact with it, which is what we were doing very, very early on before we pushed all of our employees home, you know, and we're currently right. at BMO. We're close to 100 percent from home. Uh, uh, and that dynamic, I think, will come back in the fall. I think we're also going to move to a different standard uh, of the highest risk versus the less high risk.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: and how we think about, uh, I like your surgical response discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, as we wrap up our LinkedIn Live, why don't we go to uh, something a little bit personal? Uh, Brian, what do you miss most uh, about the pre-COVID era uh, and that you hope is coming back?
1: Well, thanks for asking that. I think so much of our business and our career has really been about building relationships. And I think the art of marketing, and I miss that going out and seeing clients and looking in their eyes, not through a screen, but from across the table and really be there to answer their questions and read their questions. I miss that the most. I miss seeing people in the relationship building because at the end of the day, This is all about the client, and we have been trying to hustle as much as possible to do and focus, singularly focus on the client. So I miss that client interaction, and I'm hopeful and prayerful uh, that we're
3: going to be able to do that again very soon.
0: That's great. Dr. White?
3: I have two young boys, seven and five, so I I, I miss for them the opportunity to go to birthday parties, to go to jungle gyms, despite uh, the anxiety it causes and and i think they're probably getting tired of, of playing games with me so i miss the fact that they don't uh have their friends of their own age uh to play with they they seem to be doing okay i probably miss it more for them than they do but i'm looking forward to when they can uh play baseball and, and get back on the soccer field with their friends
0: yeah and for me it's human connection right we uh we do it through the screen like this but it's just it's not the same as uh sitting down and having a good conversation. So I'm looking forward to when we, uh, we get out of lockdowns and we can spend more time together, even if it is physically distanced. Um, let me say thank you to all the people that uh, dialed in, uh, I guess dialed in is probably the wrong word, logged in uh, to this LinkedIn Live. Uh, we hope you appreciate the, uh, the expertise that we brought to, to bear with Brian Belsky, uh, our chief investment strategist, uh, and Dr. White, chief medical officer of WebMD, Uh, This is part of a continuing series of how we try to make sure we're serving our clients as best we can, uh, make sure we can push out uh, accurate and intelligent information, uh, allows people to make better decisions. Uh, We thank you very much for attending. We thank you for your questions and uh, hopefully we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19.
2: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com slash legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit com slash public-disclosure slash.